through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter and verse by verse find ourselves beginning chapter 19 Luke chapter 19 title of our message is save and safari all right I always do that to gauge what kind of an audience I have and I have a pretty good idea right now Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're so excited about these episodes in the gospel of Luke. Where you encounter these unusual people who turn out to be just like us. We want to see ourselves represented in Zacchaeus today. In the ways that will be drawn out in the message itself and just in the ways that your Holy Spirit will reveal to us as we're listening, as we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us, your dear children. Bless our time together. May it be fruitful and fulfilling. May it further our understanding of your love and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. There's an outfit in Arizona. It's called the Treed Guide Service. Hunters pay about $500 a day to go after either bear or cougar. Treed Guide Service hunts with hounds that tree the animal so that you can come and shoot it. For a lot less, about $175 a day, they'll tree a bear or cougar for you to shoot. Nothing more harmful than a set of photographs. Now, I can't help but think of Zacchaeus as being treed. Even though he climbed the sycamore tree voluntarily, by the end of the story, you get the idea that Jesus was hunting for him, hounding after him. After all, Jesus said of the episode, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You may be familiar with a poem. It's titled The Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson after his conversion to Jesus Christ. The poem portrays Jesus as a hound in relentless pursuit of its prey. Its lines read something like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, they beat And a voice beat, more instant than the feet. Halts by me that footfall, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Really beautiful. 
That's only a portion of a much longer poem. Now, without taking anything away from the poem, Jesus is more the hunter who utilizes certain means as his hounds. His prey is sinners. He's after them to set them free from their sin. Once found, they realize that they were also seeking him. We'll use the hunter and the hound analogy to organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus gets you treed. And number two, Jesus sets you free. Let's take a look in verses one through four. Jesus gets you treed. Now you can go on all kinds of safaris in Africa to hunt or to photograph or to camp or just to explore. And as I indicated earlier, Jesus was on safari for sinners on that saving safari. Thought I'd give you one more chance to laugh at that. Let's uh, let me just go into the etymology of that title for a moment. Are you you're aware of the Beach Boys song Surfin' Safari? Do you do you know what a surfin' safari is? How many of you actually know what a surf safari is? Surfers of which I am not. But uh, my pastor in San Bernardino, John Miller, was a fantastic surfer. Surfers go on safari. They go down the coast looking at these surf spots. You can't just surf anywhere. There are certain surf spots. And they go on safari, meaning they sit there for a while and they see how the waves are coming in. And if the waves aren't coming in properly, then they go down to the next spot and the next spot until they find the place. It's called a surfing safari. So next time you hear that Beach Boys song, how many of you know who the Beach Boys are? Raise your hand. That's what it's about. And you will remember on August 7th, there was a saving safari at church. Okay, anyway, Zacchaeus was his prey. Verse 1, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. If Charles Wendall had that, you'd laugh. Anyway, <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally the Jews believed Wealth was a sign of God's blessing, but not in this case. The Roman government sold tax franchises. Jews who purchased a tax franchise and collected taxes from their fellow Jews for their oppressors were understandably despised. The tax collector added his commission to the taxes that were due. He could charge you whatever the market would bear, whatever he could get away with. And he had the power of the Roman government behind him. Add to this that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. That means he had acquired other lesser tax franchises in Jericho and had tax collectors working under him. We would today say he was a tax cartel. He had it going. Jericho was locked up and sewn up. Now in verse 3 it says he sought to see who Jesus was. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. His fame had preceded him to Jericho. You would have heard amazing things about Jesus, that he had healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, opened the ears of the deaf, set loose the tongue of the mute, that he had cast out demons, that he had raised the dead. You would have heard he was hated by the religious authorities because he was claiming to forgive sins. And you would have heard a lot of weird things about Jesus, too. You know how a story gets changed every time it's told? Or think of how tabloids today take a story about a celebrity and add to it or just make up something. And, and all of this would have been going on. There would have been some basis for some of the stories, some accurately told, many more inaccurately told. But Jesus was big news. Now, what's interesting is that God was able to use all of this to prompt a curiosity in Zacchaeus. 
From the very beginning, we want to be reminded that the Lord was seeking Zacchaeus. He was on safari looking for him as a sinner. It's an encouragement for you to remember that God is doing the same thing today and every day in the lives of all the unbelieving family and friends, co-workers and fellow students that you are praying for. You might not see God at work. The information they have may even be inaccurate, but God can use it to draw them to himself. Be honest, how many times have you gotten discouraged because you've been praying for someone and you just don't see anything happening in their life? It it seems as if there is no change, no thought. Or you're praying for somebody, you encounter somebody and they have some kind of really strange understanding of who Jesus is or was or what the purpose of the church is or what Christianity is like. Quite often most people think that we're a cult. You know, and and, um, they understand that there are cults within Christianity, but sometimes they just think religion itself is cultic. Uh, I was watching Larry King live the other night. Did you how many of you saw it with Greg Laurie and Rod Parsley and a bunch of other pastors were on there? What do you guys do when you're not on the Internet, not watching television? (laughs) Anyway, and it was good. It was a good program. Larry King was a little bit. I thought he was a little bit hostile. Good questions, but just really hostile towards Christianity and the pastors all did a, a, a great job answering. But but I did have this thought while I was listening. Christians sound weird to normal people because we have our own language. We are really bilingual and we don't realize it. We have a Christian language and we and then there's the English language and we're always saying weird things. You know, we tell people that we are, are you know, I, what, what were you doing today? I was out ministering to the flock. Whoa, man, you're freaking me out. What are you talking about? Just the idea of ministering. Just take that word. You and I understand what that means. It means we were helping people, you know, know that God loves them in a greater way. So why don't we say that? Well, because we have this slang and this this shorthand that we use. And I think we need to be a little bit more aware sometimes that people think you're weird when you talk in Christian language. And and it's, uh, you know. Hard not to do. And they and so and they don't understand when you use even simple concepts like the grace of God or uh, things like that, let alone when you get into doctrinal terminology, like words like propitiation. (laughs) Don't ever tell anybody that Jesus was the propitiation for their sins. He was. But what does that mean? Sounds like it sounds weird and cultic is what it's. And so just be aware of that. And so but here's Zacchaeus. Probably he had heard all kinds of weird things about Jesus. Nonetheless, God used it to form in him a curiosity so strong that he's going to uh, seek to see who Jesus was. And that's where we are in verse three. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I'm not going to do it. I know you expect me to. And that hurts me. You expect me to make fun of short people, but I'm bigger than that. Zacchaeus was a short person. He had little hands and little eyes. Little baby legs and stood so low you had to pick him up just to say hello. That's from Josephus. No, it's not. 
Now, you probably recognize those lyrics. They're from the most famous ridicule of short people, at least in our culture, the 1978 Randy Newman song, Short People. Now, the songwriter has since gone on record as regretting the impact of that song. He intended the song as a satire to poke fun at all types of prejudice, never as something to poke fun at short people. And uh, so just just know that if you want to visualize this scene as it unfolds, think Danny DeVito in robes and you'll be on the right track. Isn't that how you'd cast this today? Sure. I was on the short person support website. You're laughing, but I really was. It's shortsupport.org. If you'd like to write it down, some of you, I can't see you, but maybe you'd like to write it down. Anyway, it listed a bunch of short people. It listed a bunch of short people and it listed Danny DeVito at an even five feet tall. So he would be a perfect actor to play the role of Zacchaeus. Now, something more is suggested by his short physical stature. Like everyone who is not a believer, Zacchaeus fell short of the glory of God. Sure, he had everything this world could offer because he was rich and could purchase, uh, could purchase excuse me, anything he wanted. But there was a problem in his stature he could do nothing about. And it was intended to illustrate for him and for us the problem of sin in our spiritual stature that we can do nothing about. And so verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was going to pass that way. Now, wealthy chief tax collectors didn't run ahead of crowds to, I mean, this was undignified and embarrassing and they certainly didn't climb trees. Something had gripped his heart. Something was prompting him to get into that tree. Zacchaeus didn't know it, but he was being hunted by the hound of heaven. It's a beautiful picture. So all of a sudden he's running ahead. He's being hunted and he doesn't know it. And he gets up in the tree. Now there's something else fascinating happening in this story. Zacchaeus is illustrating many previous points that Jesus has just made about eternal life in chapter 18. In chapter 18, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Tree climbing generally is something that children do. Now, you may have to climb a tree to trim its branches or something like that. But just on a day to day basis, I don't pull over and climb trees as as a source of recreation. But I do see children doing this all the time. There's something fascinating about climbing trees. I remember climbing many a tree when I was a kid. And so I submit to you that a grown man climbing a tree in order to see Jesus is evidence of a childlike desire to enter the kingdom of God. Now, by the end of our story, Zacchaeus will be giving away most of his wealth. In chapter 18, Jesus had told a rich young ruler to do something similar, but you remember he had refused. Hard as it was for a rich man to enter heaven, Jesus said it's not impossible. And Zacchaeus shows us that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then we saw Jesus heal blind Bartimaeus. There's a couple of points 
of uh, similarity between these two men. First of all, Bartimaeus was blind and he couldn't see Jesus. Zacchaeus was short, but he couldn't see Jesus either. Then Bartimaeus, as a beggar, would have his particular spot along the Jericho Road. We went into this a little bit last time we were together. We don't have a lot of uh, beggars in our community. But when I was in Southern California, especially in San Bernardino, because it's, it's a hub, it's a railroad hub, and we have a lot of people come through there who are riding the rails. And there's an awful lot of beggars, and, and I, you know, we would call them bums, uh, men and women who pass through San Bernardino. And we got to know a lot of them because our church wasn't in the best area of town, and we would try to minister to them and reach out to them, share the gospel and, and different things. And, and if you spend any time in that kind of subculture, you find out that oftentimes beggars have their own particular spots that they stake out. And you get used to seeing these same people in the same spot. Where's old crazy Fred today? You know, because he's usually on the corner of Baseline and Del Rosa. And then they'll move to another area and this kind of thing. They fight each other over their spots. Hey, this is my spot. And so Bartimaeus would have his spot. Now Zacchaeus, as a tax collector, he would have his tax booths and he would have a spot as well along the Jericho Road. And so it's an interesting contrast. Who would you rather have been? Bartimaeus at his begging spot or Zacchaeus at his extortion tax booth? Both were in the same condition as far as Jesus was concerned. And so Zacchaeus brings together many ideas that Jesus has been preaching about in the previous chapter. Now, back to our story, Zacchaeus was treed. On the surface, it was mere curiosity that treed him. But you and I know that God was working in him as well. First of all, the Bible in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, declares that God has set, and I quote, eternity in your heart. We have an inward sense that we are eternal beings created for a purpose. Outwardly, though, we are perishing. We're getting old. We experience time. And this creates a spiritual dissatisfaction. There's an internal prompting that God can use to draw us to himself. We sometimes call it an emptiness or a, a, a heaviness or there's a, a, a hole in our heart. I mean, there's a lot of different ways, but it is the general dissatisfaction of a human being that there is something more, something beyond myself to discover. Sadly, we try to discover it in physical ways. Uh, you know, and we go off into all these various uh, lusts and addictions or we try and find it in in spiritual ways, but not by seeking the creator of the universe. We get into all these weird religions or substances by which you can expand your mind, those kinds of things. And at the end of all that, you're still left wanting because there's only one thing, one person that can fill that void in your life. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, it's not going too far to speculate that Zacchaeus was dissatisfied with his wealth and position. It is the testimony of many a rich person that they would give everything for a deep and abiding sense of spiritual fulfillment. And third, Jesus had once walked by the tax booth of Matthew and called him to follow as a disciple. And Matthew, the tax collector, had gotten up and followed Jesus and been following him now going on three and a half years. This would have been big news 
among tax collectors. You know, whatever profession you're in, you pay attention to what's happening in your profession. Other pastors, other correctional officers, other uh, law enforcement officers, other teachers. You have unions or associations and and you know what's going on in that small group of people. And so when Matthew got up and left his tax booth unattended, left his tax franchise, this would have sent ripples through the tax community. What's that all about? And if you're a guy like Zacchaeus, this would have caused you some thought, some concern. Some, you would have had to deal with this. What is it that makes a tax collector with a lucrative business get up and follow an itinerant religious man? And it would have at least been on the back of his mind. Zacchaeus had been being hounded for some time by these and many other means. Now he was treed. And Jesus moved in, but not for the kill. Verses 5 through 10, Jesus sets you free. It must have been a hilarious sight, really. There was Zacchaeus up in the tree, and Jesus, I believe with perfect comic timing, stopped and slowly looked up into the tree and smiled and began to speak to him as if they knew each other. And if you don't think Jesus had a sense of humor, you're wrong. I mean, this is hilarious. This is funny. I don't know how it's been portrayed on film, but this is hilarious. Zacchaeus, you know, has got to be hoping nobody sees him up there. And Jesus looks like he's going to get by. Hey, Zacchaeus, how you doing? And then everybody gathers around the tree. And there he is, just like a treed animal surrounded by the hounds. And it's, it's really pretty funny. Now, Jesus did know Zacchaeus. He had known him from before the foundation of the world. He had known him from his mother's womb because he created him there. But Zacchaeus didn't know Jesus. He knew who Jesus was in a sense, but he did not know him personally. All that was about to change. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. This is the only time recorded when Jesus invited himself over to someone's house. I think he probably did this on other occasions. Uh, We don't have everything that's recorded about Jesus in the Gospels. The Gospel of John says because there isn't enough room in the world to hold the books that would talk about these stories. But it's interesting to note that this is the only time recorded. I believe it's a way of letting Zacchaeus know that the events of that day were really a divine appointment. Now, I don't know what Zacchaeus was thinking. Uh, He was, you know just driven by this prompting to see who Jesus was. And and he acted unusually that day and got up into a tree and he's waiting for Jesus to come by just to catch a glimpse of him. And yet when Jesus stops and talks to him, it all comes together. He realizes this was God's plan from the beginning. This was a divine appointment. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't any of those. God used all of this. And that's an encouragement to him. It's an encouragement to you. There are a lot of divine appointments. We don't always keep them in the sense that we recognize them, but there are a lot of them. The unbeliever that you're praying for, they're having divine appointments. They're not telling you. They don't, you know, when you share with somebody, say, excuse me, I'd like to share Jesus with you. Can you tell me of all the other times that someone has shared Christ with you and what you're really thinking in your heart of hearts? They just present a face like, I don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone, you Jesus freak. But God has given them many divine appointments throughout their life. 
you that have be, come to Jesus Christ and given your life to him, you can remember times when the gospel was shared with you, when people tried to bring you to church or tell you about Jesus Christ. Hey, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe somebody invited you or, uh, you know, maybe you were just walking by and, well, this would be odd, but maybe you were just walking by and you came in. Hey, some guys, you know, they're, they go to church to meet chicks. You know, I mean, it happens. Why do you laugh when it's not funny? But anyway, so there's a lot of different reasons that people have for coming to church. And, and they're all divine appointments. And, and, and you think that you're here for one reason, but you're really here because the Lord has invited you here. And so verse 6, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Now, I'm not a very proficient tree climber, and I find it harder to climb down than to climb up, although it's faster because you fall. Get it? I should just quit while I'm ahead, I guess. Okay, the rest of the study is just going to be total serious stuff. If it were me, I would have waited until the crowd moved on. Not Zacchaeus. He had lost all sense of that. He only wanted to obey the Lord. And so he scurries down the tree. And for perhaps the first time in his life, Zacchaeus experienced joy. There was a deep and settled satisfaction in his heart that filled him in a way that nothing his wealth could purchase had ever done. You know, to have Jesus call you by name and to realize that he knows you. Oh, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? And that's what Zacchaeus experienced. He knew at that moment that Jesus Christ knew him, knew who he was, knew his name, and was ministering to him. When they saw it, they all complained, saying, ah, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now, this was the standard criticism used against Jesus by the religious leaders of his day. Unbelievers still have a standard set of criticisms that they use whenever they are confronted with Jesus. Usually they have one that always works for them and then another one that that's in reserve just in case you have some kind of an answer for it. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Christianity is a crutch for the weak. If there is a God, why doesn't he stop evil before it happens? The Bible is full of errors. What about the pygmy in Africa? They ask these questions and, oh, wow. It's no different than them saying, oh, Jesus receives sinners. Now, God is working behind the scenes, below the surface, hounding that unbeliever. They say such stupid things about God because they are cornered or treed. They're like a wild beast. And so they strike out with this kind of thing. You're, you're sharing with them about eternal life and the joy of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And they say, well, wait a minute. I know my neighbor says he's a Christian and he's a hypocrite. Okay. So you're going to die and go to hell because your neighbor's a hypocrite. Christianity's a crutch for the weak. Okay. So when you stand before the Lord and you've got nothing to say about your own sins, what are you going to lean on? And you go down and down and down. And really, it's not even answering those questions. Just, you know what? Ignore those questions. Jesus ignored this question. He didn't answer them at this time. Just ignore questions. Ask the Lord to tell you what to say to people. You know, the questions that people have, they're just the, the responses of cornered animals. And what you need is to share with them what's most needful for them. 
Actually, what this story shows us is the greatest evidence, the greatest thing that you can share with anybody through any of their excuses is just your changed life. It's something they can't argue with. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Okay, it's a crutch for the weak. That's fine. Why doesn't God stop evil before it happens? That would take a long time to explain, but there's an answer for it. The Bible is full of errors. No, it's not. What about the pygmy in Africa? Go talk to him. <laughs> but in the meantime, in the meantime, I was blind. Now I see I was dead. Now I'm alive. I'm filled with God. There's been a radical transformation in my life. It's something you can't deny. And so just keep that in mind. Don't get off track on all of these issues. Verse 8, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. According to the law of Moses, if a thief voluntarily confessed to his crime, he had to restore what he took, add a fifth to it and bring an offering to the Lord. If he stole something he could not restore, he had to pay fourfold. And if he was caught with the goods, he had to pay double. And so Zacchaeus just goes right to the law in the sense of saying, hey, I'll just go ahead and restore fourfold the most that the law would require. He offered to pay the highest price demanded by the law. It was a powerful evidence that he had been changed inwardly. Now, notice he kept God's law after he knew the Lord and as a result of knowing the Lord. And that's the way it always is. You don't need to try hard to keep God's law. Motivated by love, you'll find yourself keeping God's law as a result, never as a requirement. And so if somebody says, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, do you need to keep God's law? You say, no, I don't. I don't need to keep it at all. And they'll be blown away. And you say, I just find myself keeping it because I love the Lord. And the natural fruit and overflow of loving Jesus is doing what is right. Now, how does such a dramatic change occur? What Jesus tells you in verse 9, he says, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. The Jews were proud to be the physical descendants of Abraham. They thought and they taught that they were saved and on their way to heaven because of their physical descent from him. And this is very common in the world today. It's common right here in our congregation or valley. There are people who are born into families and believe that they are saved and on their way to heaven because of their a physical relationship on earth. I believe this for many years. I've told you this hundreds of times, but it bears repeating. I was born into an Italian Roman Catholic family. We're like right there, right next to God, you know. I mean, you don't get any closer than that. And I, I thought, well, you know, I guess I could be a better person. I could be a priest. I could, you know, do the, but I don't really need to because I'm already saved. I'm already in. I'm, a, I'm an Italian Roman Catholic. And uh, so, you know, purgatory beckons. That's fine. I'll spend a few thousand years in purgatory, but I'm in. And there's a lot of groups that believe this. There's Protestant groups that believe this, that they teach these kinds of covenant relationships. And, and people give lip service to joining a church, but they really don't know who Jesus Christ is. And so this is not unusual. And so the Jews thought that they were saved because of their physical descent. But the Bible makes it clear that physical birth doesn't save anyone. You're a sinner by birth. You need a spiritual birth. And that can save anyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Zacchaeus was saved because he was a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Abraham had left everything to follow God. And Zacchaeus had done the same thing. His outward behavior 
was only an evidence of his inward faith. You can give everything away. You can dedicate your life to helping the poor or the disadvantaged, but it will not save you. You must be born spiritually, born a second time, born again to be saved. When you're born physically, you inherit sin from your parents. There's nothing you can do about it. You can be mad about it. You can be upset. You can think it's unfair. It doesn't matter. Actually, it's incredibly fair once you understand the whole scope of the gospel. You see, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they represented the entire human race. And God said, I love you. I've given you everything. We have a a great relationship, but I need to know that you love me. If there's going to be love, there has to be free will. And so I'm going to give you one rule, one tiny rule. Don't eat of the fruit of this one tree. They did. They made a poor judgment. And as a result, sin came into the human race. Every human being after them, descended from them, is born with that original sin, that inherited sin. Except one, Jesus Christ, because he was born of a virgin. Fully God, fully man. He could now represent man before God. He could take upon himself the punishment for sin and having done that he could offer us the perfection of his righteousness so that we could go to heaven and so you know there's people get upset and say well i don't care what adam and eve did i don't i don't agree with that well first of all that's just dumb it doesn't matter that's like saying i don't care that my you know parents had a certain genetic structure i'm going to be whoever i want to be I don't care that my parents were short. I'm going to be 12 feet tall. No, you're not. Because you were born a certain way. You're born a sinner. Because of Adam and Eve. Here's the good part about it and why it's a good thing. Because Adam and Eve represented you. Adam represented the whole human race. Jesus represented the whole human race. And so just as we inherit sin from Adam, now we can have eternal life from Jesus Christ as we identify with him. And so it's really a beautiful thing that God has done. And so you need to be born spiritually. And it's an analogy. Just like you were born physically with sin, you can be born again spiritually. God gives you his nature and he now sees you as if you've never sinned because you've trusted Jesus Christ. In verse 10, the Lord says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Today, most organizations have what's called a mission statement. You don't have to be a church. Most secular organizations have one. If Jesus had a mission statement, it might be what he said here, to seek and to save that which was lost. Every day when he arose from either sleep or all night prayer, he knew what he was going to do. He was going to seek and save the lost. It kept him on task. As far as hunting goes, Jesus has a catch and release policy. We would call it a catch and regenerate policy. We saw Zacchaeus as a treed sinner. Now we see him as a freed saint. If you're a Christian, you might ask yourself if you have a mission statement for your life. Well, of course you do. In fact, you have a ton of them. You have one at least for every part of your life. For example, if you're a Christian, generally speaking, you are to go and make disciples of all nations. We call it the Great Commission. As you're going through the world, you're to be sharing Christ. That is something that all Christians share as a mission. If you're a husband, you're to love your wife as Christ also loved the church and sacrificed for it. 
If you're a wife, you're to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. If you're a child in a household, you're to obey your parents in the Lord. And so in a sense, if you want to think of it that way, we have these mission statements. You know, the world can be a confusing place. We can kind of get off track. There are many things that try and knock us down and get us off track. And people are, well, what should I be doing? And, you know, what, what am I going to do for God and all this stuff? Well, a lot of that's all set. It's just you need to be aware of your mission. You need to get back on task. Okay, I'm a Christian. I, I'm, as I'm going through the world, I should be sharing Christ. Am I doing that? How can I do that better or more? Am I a husband? I should be loving my wife the way Christ loves me. If I'm a wife, I should be submitting. And all down the line, there's, there's uh, in First Peter, it talks all about employers and employees, citizens and rulers. Every possible relationship you can think of, there is a bottom line. And you know what I like about it? People think that the scripture is so immense and complex and, and all this. And it can be deep and meaningful. Don't get me wrong. But really, our mission statements are very simple. They're just a few words. Go and make disciples of all nations. Husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your husband. I mean, do you know how many books have been written on these subjects? There are thousands and thousands of books about the marriage relationship. And I'm not saying that they're all bad. There's two or three good ones. Maybe four. Everybody's reading how to do something that is, first of all, simple and secondly, impossible without God's help. Nothing could be simpler than the rules that God has given us, than the mission that he's given us. And as soon as you say, "Okay, I can't do that, I need God to do it through me. And then you realize, oh, I have God living in me and he wants to do it through me. I guess if I'm not doing it, I'm just being disobedient and I need to learn more about that. It's a freeing and releasing thing. And so we do have these mission statements and maybe we should start looking at the Bible more in that way as a as a mission statement to keep us on task. If you're not yet a Christian, if you've not yet realized that you fall short and need to be saved, God is hounding you. He's using many different means, both internal and external. He wants to get you treed never to ruin your life, but to set you free. No amount of wealth or accomplishment or achievement could ever satisfy you and bring you real joy. God has placed eternity in your heart and only a relationship with him through Jesus Christ can fill that place. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we thank you for these things. They're sweet, Lord, wonderful to realize and to behold and to to remember, to bring back to our hearts by the ministry of your spirit. How simple. And yet how profound at the same time. Lord, here is Zacchaeus who uh, 35 minutes ago, I didn't think I had any real relationship to him. And yet I see myself so uh, beautifully represented in him. And I pray that my brothers and sisters do as well. And I pray that any here that don't know you see themselves, Lord. And that they would give up their running from you and realize that the more they run, the more they're really seeking you. And that you are the person, Lord, that is going to bring lasting fulfillment and joy into their life. Do that work, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.
Some of the guys will be down here as they always are to pray with you. Uh, anything that's on your heart, anything that you want to share and pray for, if you have a need in your life, physical, financial, otherwise, come and talk to the guys. If you're not a Christian and uh, you, you can relate to what we're talking about here and you think, well, yeah, I, I just there's just something more I need in my life. And you're saying it is Jesus. So how do I connect with God through Jesus Christ? The guys would be happy to talk to you about that not asking you to join our church or anything like that. I just want to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which he did, that means he's alive today. And even though he's in heaven and we're on earth, you can know him. You can have a personal living relationship with him. You can be born that second time. Have your sins forgiven so that you are from now on on your way to heaven with the Lord. And you can have joy for the first time in your life. Not happiness. You might even be happy in some areas of your life, but you cannot know joy until you know God because joy is produced from within you in a relationship with God. So there is no joy apart from the Lord. So come forward afterwards and, and we'll share that with you. As we look to the rest of the week, um, Wednesday morning, the men are together over in the cafe at 6.30 for a time of devotion and prayer fellowship. Wednesday night, we'll be back in the fellowship hall for our midweek Bible study. Calvary Kids Club meets at that time for kids up through fifth grade. Youth fellowship for junior high and high school. Uh, Thursday afternoon, first service I said Friday over and over again because I've lost my mind, but it's Thursday afternoon. We have our bulletin folding party in the cafe. Don't scoff at that. It's turned into quite an event. It's one of the biggest events in our church. A lot of people are coming out because I'm making smoothies and chillers for them. But uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and listen, some of you men, this is a very masculine activity. We do have some men coming. Hey, paper cuts are nothing to sneer at. I'm telling you, they're vicious. And uh, we'll show you where the eye wash is in case you get any, you know debris and your but anyway couples are coming bring your kids uh it's a lot of fun it only takes about 20 minutes or a half an hour depending on how many people come but people stay i can't get rid of everybody you know because you're just having such a good time uh, may god bless and keep you i'm so glad that we could share this time this morning and look at jesus christ his love for us if you're a christian this is what the lord did for you he hounded you down the corridors of your life and through your mind until he had you at a place where he could call you by name and where your heart could be broken and you could respond to that love, that love that you had never known anywhere else before, that pure and sweet love of your creator and savior. And if you're not a Christian, you have never been loved until you meet Jesus Christ and you can't ever know love until the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. So come forward and let these guys pray for you. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. Of your mercy and your grace, I love your presence in this place. I'm burned by your fire.